Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 2, Episode 43. Last week, I covered the history of Damascus through the middle of the Islamic era. If you missed it, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm picking up the history of Damascus at that point. So let's get started. After Al-Walid and all of the related infighting came the Turks. This time it was the Seljuk Turks who came on the scene in the late 11th century. A little background on this hard-to-pronounce group. The Seljuks originated from the Aghuds Turks. In the 9th century, they lived on the edge of Muslim territory north of the Caspian Aral Seas, in what is now parts of Russia, Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, and Afghanistan. When Seljuk, the leader of the tribe, had a falling out with Yapgu, the chief of the Aghuds, Seljuk split his group off from the Aghas. Sometime around 985, Seljuk converted to Islam. In the 11th century, the Seljuks migrated to Persia, where they confronted the Ghaznavid Empire. The Seljuks then defeated the Ghaznavids at the Battle of the Nasa Plains, on the southern shore of the Caspian Sea, in 1035. Then, at the Battle of Dandanakan, they defeated a Ghaznavid army, and after a successful siege of Isfahan by Tugril that ended in 1051, they established an empire later called the Great Seljuk Empire. In the decades following this, the Seljuks mixed with the local population and adopted the Persian culture and language. With the Seljuks, Damascus again became the capital of a group of independent states. The city was ruled by Tutush I, beginning in 1079. Tutush was succeeded by his son Abu Nasser Dukak in 1095. During their rule, the Seljuks began the methodical reversal of Shia influence in the city. Due to the Seljuks, Damascus became one of the most important centers of Islamic philosophy in the Muslim world. Dukak died in 1104, and his mentor, Tagtaken seized control of the city and therefore the region. Under both Dudak and Tagtaken, Damascus experienced a period of stability, which led to economic prosperity and trade. With the diminished Shia influence, the city's Sunni majority partook in the growing prosperity and regained their influence. And, with that, the Baghdad-based Abbasids had some sway over the area as well. But all was not well, as the Damascus-based Seljuks were in constant conflict with their cultural brethren in Aleppo. While these two cities were preoccupied with each other, the Crusaders arrived in the Levant in 1097. They then conquered Jerusalem, Mount Lebanon, and much of Palestine. But, cliches being what they are, and since the concept that the enemy of my enemy is my friend was just as true then as it is today, Dudak did not worry too much about the Crusaders to his south, as further south was the Fatimid Caliphate of Egypt. But when Togtokin assumed power, he saw the western invaders as a true threat to Damascus. At that time, the areas under his control also include Homs, the Bukhah Valley, Haran, and the Golan Heights. With military assistance from other regional rulers, Togtokin succeeded in stopping Crusader attacks in Golan and Haran. His primary regional ally, Madud from Mosul in present-day Iraq, was assassinated in the Umayyad Mosque in 1109. 
and with this, Damascus lost much of its northern Muslim support, and this compelled Tukakin to negotiate a truce with the Crusaders in 1110. The details of that truce will be covered much later. Tutakin would rule for another 18 years until his death in 1128. At that time, his son, Taj al-Din Buri, became the token ruler of Damascus. His rule was minimized when the Seljuk prince of Mosul, Ahmad al-Din Zengi, took power in Aleppo and received permission from the Abbasids in Baghdad to extend his authority to Damascus. The next year, in 1129, approximately 6,000 Islami Muslims were killed by Sunnis in Damascus, their version of the Night of the Long Knives. The Sunnis were motivated by rumors contending that there was a plot by the Islamis to assist the Crusaders in capturing Damascus. The rumor went on to state that in return for this, the Islamis would gain control of Tyre. Not too long after the massacre, the Crusaders attempted to take control of the unstable situation in the city and commenced an assault on Damascus with nearly 60,000 troops. However, Buri gained an alliance with Zengi and somehow managed to block the Crusaders from reaching the city. But then, in 1132, Buri was assassinated by Islami agents. He was succeeded by his son, Shams al-Muluk, Islami. Like father, like son, Ismail turned out to be a tyrant who met the same fate as his father, and that was being murdered, this time in 1135. Who done it? Well, in this instance, it was his dear old mother. I'll spare you for my pronunciation of her name. Ismail's brother, Sabab al-Din Muhammad, replaced him. I know I haven't said it before, but knowing how history turns out, I'm sure it won't be the last time I utter these words. There's no feud like a family feud. Cain meet Abel. The sons of Abraham fight to this day. The shoe feud between Puma and Adidas. Yeah, that too is a real family feud. Look it up. Back to Damascus. In the meantime, Zengi from Mosul was intent on gaining control of Damascus. So instead of fighting his way in, he went in the other direction. He married the murdered former leader and his brother's mother in 1138. Now that I've said that, even I'm confused, so I'll rephrase. Zengi married the mother of Damascus's current ruler. His new wife was the woman who had her son murdered. There's so much commentary I could insert, like he should watch his own back. But I'll just let you fill in that blank. Muhammad was then murdered in 1139 by his own family. He really should have seen that one coming. He was replaced by a man on his Muin al-Din Unur, who held the title of Memluk, which literally translates to slave soldier. The transfer of power then led to Zengi, encouraged by his new bride, to lay siege to Damascus. The city's response was to ally itself with the crusader kingdom of Jerusalem, in an attempt to thwart Zengi's army. And it worked. Zengi retreated with his troops, and because an idle army is internally dangerous, he diverted them to attacks against northern Syria. In 1144, Zengi conquered Edessa, which at the time was in the grips of the Crusaders. This led to an additional influx of reinforcement Crusaders from Europe in 1148. About the same time, and in a pattern that was becoming the norm, 
Zengi was assassinated. With his death, his territory was divided among his sons. One of these sons, namely Nur Adin, was the emir of Aleppo. Nur Adin then forged an alliance with Damascus. When the Crusaders' reinforcements arrived, they, along with the leaders of Jerusalem, decided to attack Damascus. The attack, as was common for the era and with walled cities, turned to a siege. And the siege was an utter disaster for the Crusaders. When the city seemed to be teetering on the edge of collapse, the Crusader army unexpectedly withdrew and then attacked a different section of the city's wall. This attack was driven back. Within the next couple of years, by 1154, Damascus was securely under the control of Nur ad-Din. Then, ten years later, in 1164, Jerusalem's king Amalric invaded Fatimid Egypt. The Egyptians asked for assistance from Nur ad-Din, and Nur ad-Din sent his general Shirku, along with an unknown number of troops. And two years later, in 1166, King Amalric was defeated. General Shirku died in 1169 and was succeeded by his nephew Yusuf, who later assumed the name Saladin. Not long thereafter, the Crusaders and the Byzantines joined together to lay siege to Damata, a city as far north in Egypt's Nile Delta as you can go before wading into the Mediterranean. The Crusader and Byzantine forces were defeated by Saladin. Saladin, using the momentum from this battle, would then overthrow the Fatimid Caliphs and eventually established himself as the Sultan of Egypt. Are you taking notes? Because I'm going over a lot right now. At the same time, Saladin began to slowly distance himself from Nur ad-Din, eventually becoming completely independent. Then, in 1174, both Almeric and Nur ad-Din died, and Saladin would wield control over Damascus and the surrounding Syrian territory but his string of victories couldn't last forever. In 1177, and despite having a numerical advantage, Saladin was defeated by the Crusaders at the Battle of Montgisassard, thought to be in Gezer, in what is now today central Israel. Then, in 1183, Saladin laid siege to Karak on the eastern shore of the Dead Sea. But that too was not successful, and he was forced to withdraw. He was not quite done yet. In 1187, he ordered a full invasion of Jerusalem and in the process decimated the Crusader army at the Battle of Hattin in northeastern Israel. Not too long after that, he invaded the northern Israeli port of Acre. And then, in 1187, Saladin captured Jerusalem. These events stunned the Europeans and it eventually resulted in the Third Crusade, in fact, in 1189, Richard I of England, Philip II of France, and Frederick I, who was the Holy Roman Emperor, embarked on their monumental journey to the Holy Land. Frederick I, however, didn't quite make it there, drowning or perhaps having a heart attack in the Gaksu River in the Taurus Mountains of what is now Turkey. The remaining Crusaders, along with their reinforcements, then lay siege to Acre. The siege proved to last longer than expected, almost two years, but they eventually succeeded and captured the city. Following the Crusaders' capture of Acre, Richard I, aka Richard the Lionhearted, defeated Saladin at the Battle of Arsuf in 1191 
and again at the Battle of Jaffa in 1192. These two crusader victories gained the Christian forces control of most of the eastern Mediterranean coast. But, to their dismay, their territory did not extend far inland, and Jerusalem remained out of their reach. Frustration and exhaustion reigned supreme on both sides, and they settled the matter with the Treaty of Jaffa in 1192. Saladin agreed to allow Western Christian pilgrimages to Jerusalem, which permitted the Crusaders to fulfill their holy vows. And with that, the Europeans returned home. The locals who had allied with the Crusaders then rebuilt their cities along the coast. In 1193, Saladin died, which led to frequent conflicts between different Ayyubid sultans, primarily from Damascus and Cairo. Essentially, over the next century, control of the region oscillated between the two cities. A curious note, international trade seemingly flourished during the period with patterned Byzantine and Chinese silks available via trade routes that passed through Damascus. In fact, the city was essentially the western end of the so-called Silk Road, and gave rise to the word Damask in the English language. The rule of the Ayyubids ended with the Mongols invaded Syria in 1260, but the Mongols were defeated at Ayanjalut in southeastern Galilee later that same year. With that, Damascus became the provincial capital of a Mamluk empire, who ruled remotely from Egypt. About a century later, roughly half the city's population would fall victim to the Black Death. In 1400, the Turco-Mongol ruler Timur besieged Damascus. In response, the Mamluks sent a delegation from Cairo to negotiate with him. No peace was made as Timur conquered the city. Like Sherman, he employed a scorched earth strategy, even burning the Umayyad Mosque. Like I covered in the history of Syria, he enslaved many people, mostly artisans, and sent them to Timur's capital at Samarkand, which is now in Uzbekistan. But at least these artisans were allowed to live. Unskilled workers, children, and anyone else deemed without value were massacred with their decapitated heads stacked in a field outside the northeast corner of the city's walls. In fact, this same site is still named Bajur al-Arus, which translates to the Tower of Heads. History is replete with the exploits of truly despicable rulers. Like a phoenix, or at least a city on an important trade route, Damascus rebuilt and even continued to serve as a Mamluk provincial capital until 1516. At this time, to the north of Damascus lay the small Ottoman Empire. Well, small for now and the strength and position of the Mamluks began to concern them. So, in 1516, the Ottoman Turks were growing increasingly concerned by the relationship between the Mamluks and the Persian Safavids. At that time, they began a campaign against the Mamluks in Syria. On the first day of autumn that year, the Mamluk governor of Damascus abandoned the city, and a few short weeks later, Damascus was under complete Ottoman control. And the Ottomans were not quite done. They then headed south towards Israel and Egypt. But this is an episode about Damascus, and for once, I'm trying to stay on topic. After their conquest, the Ottomans went on a construction spree in the city, building several mosques and mausoleums. Curiously, they also took a census. 
where it's recorded that Damascus had 10,423 households, a surprisingly exact number. The Ottomans controlled the city for the next 400 years, except for a brief occupation by Ibrahim Pasha of Egypt for eight years in the mid-19th century. Like I mentioned in the episode on Syrian history, its location on the road and therefore Islamic pilgrimage route between Turkey and Mecca certainly helped, as did the various trade routes that converged in the area. Under Ottoman rule, Christians and Jews were permitted to practice their religions. But this was not without incident. In 1840, a situation that would later become known as the Damascus Affair happened. This was when several members of the Jewish community were falsely accused of ritually murdering a Christian monk. There was an anti-Semitic uprising that resulted in the accused being imprisoned and tortured by Ottoman authorities. At the same time, a mob attacked and pillaged a local synagogue and several members of the Jewish community were killed. The affair drew a great deal of international attention and even a conference in Alexandria, Egypt. The conference managed to attain the release of those falsely imprisoned. But the dead were still dead. A few years later, in 1860, Christians were massacred in the city, specifically when fighting between the Druze and Maronites at Mount Lebanon spread. Several thousand Christians were killed, with many more being rescued after the intervention of the Algerian exile Abd al-Qadar and his soldiers. Al-Qadar escorted the Christians to the safety of his residence. Despite this, the Christian quarter of the old city was burnt down a torching that did not even spare the churches. But the Christian residents of the very poor Midan district, which lay outside the city walls, were protected by their Muslim neighbors. An American missionary estimated the city's population in 1867 to have been 140,000, of whom 30,000 were Christians, 10,000 were Jewish, and 100,000 were Muslims. Of the 30,000 Christians, less than 100 were Protestant, with the vast majority being either Catholic or Eastern Orthodox. The history of Damascus in the 20th century, with the fall of the Ottomans and the control of the British and French, is essentially the same as that of the country of Syria as a whole. So, in an effort to avoid redundancy, at least in this case, simply refer back to the podcast's previous episodes. But I will highlight a few curiosities. On October 1, 1918, T.E. Lawrence, a.k.a. Lawrence of Arabia, entered Damascus. Yes, he was a real person. Two days later, Arab forces led by Prince Faisal entered Damascus. Then a military government under Shirki Pasha was installed, and Faisal ibn Hussein was proclaimed King of Syria. And with that, the country would remain under the control of Western states for about 30 years. The Syrians would eventually gain their independence and see many coups and elected leaders. Yeah, that's sarcasm, folks. And finally, they would become embroiled in a civil war that lasts to this day. I couldn't leave off this episode and wrap up the history of Damascus without covering the geography and climate. Since it always pays to build on the high ground, as it's easier to defend... Damascus is situated on a plateau about 50 miles or 80 kilometers inland from the Mediterranean Sea. It's also flanked by the Lebanon Mountains. 
As the name suggests, these mountains are on the border between Syria and Lebanon. The range has peaks in excess of 10,000 feet or just over 3,000 meters. Due to the rain shadow effect of the mountains, Damascus has what is considered a cold, semi-arid climate. Summers are dry and hot with relatively low humidity. Winters are cool and fairly rainy and snowfall is infrequent. Overall, the annual rainfall is about 5 inches or 130 millimeters and usually occurs from October to May. This rainfall amount is comparable to Phoenix, Arizona. And similar to Phoenix, it's a dry heat, just like your oven, which will still burn your food. The region surrounding Damascus occasionally experiences droughts. But these droughts have been historically mitigated by the Barada River, which originates from the mountain streams fed by melting snow. In fact, the river is the primary water source for the city. It also allows Damascus to be surrounded by the Ghouta, which is irrigated farmland where many vegetables, grains, and fruits have been cultivated for millennium. Roman maps of the area show that, at one time, the Barada River emptied into a lake of some size east of Damascus. Today, that lake is known as the Bahara Ataba, and is sometimes completely dry, especially in years of severe drought. Like I've mentioned so many times, the city found itself at the crossroads of trade routes. First, there is the north-south trade route, which connected Egypt with Asia Minor. And then there is the east-west route that crossed the desert between Lebanon on the coast and the Euphrates River Valley. The modern city has an area of 41 square miles, or just over 100 square kilometers. To put that geographic size in context, if it were in the U.S., it would not make a list that includes the 150 largest cities. At one time, apparently, Damascus was surrounded by an oasis, supplied with water from the Barada River. The Fija Spring, which lay west along the Barada Valley, formerly provided the city with drinking water. But, over time, the Ghouta Oasis has been decreasing in size, corresponding with the rapid expansion of housing and industry in the city. Now, it is almost completely dry. Adding insult to injury, it has also become polluted due to the city's vehicle emissions, industrial runoff, and untreated sewage. So that's the history of Damascus. Next week, I'll cover the history of Moab. You don't want to miss it. In what has proven to be unusual for me, I really didn't get off topic today. So maybe this will be the week you will go to iTunes and give the podcast a positive review. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. You can also find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page. And if you're enjoying the podcast, go ahead and subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released. Thanks for listening, and have a great week. Thank you.